what Keep Kids Alive is all about. It's all about preserving relationships. In Pennsylvania in 2008, there were no laws about cell phones and driving. To me, that was a call to action. I never expected studying business and finance in college that I'd have a job that makes me feel so good about myself that, you know, I feel like I can uplift people. I can make uh, an impact in a, a positive way in the world. At the end of the day, we all want the same things. We want to protect our families and stay close with those we love. And if people could just get to that point before they felt it directly, whether, whether it's through stories like ours or, or what have you, you can really improve the world just by driving a little bit smarter and safer. One of the students who was a junior or senior, you know, 16, 17 years old, saying, I was six years old when this happened. My parents forced us to come out and look at the cars and understand how serious and how dangerous driving can be. Hello, everyone. I'm Tom Everson. I'm the executive director of and founder of Keep Kids Alive Drive 25. And I want to welcome you to the Keep Kids Alive podcast. Joining us today are JC Good and her husband, uh, Steve Johnson. They're joining us from New York to share their story with us. And uh, we very much look forward to hearing from you. I'm JC Good, and I am a public speaker and advocate for cell phone free roads. I'm Steve Johnson. I'm an advocate for cell-free roads and founder of Hang Up and Drive. Well, thanks for taking the time out this afternoon. One of the things I always like to do to start out with is um, just ask you the question, how did you connect with Keep Kids Alive Drive 25? How did I find Keep Kids Alive Drive 25? I want to say maybe it was you that instigated this, Tom. I think we connected maybe on LinkedIn, I think. And then I started following your work on all social media, being amazed at what awesome stuff you're doing. Well, and, and I recall that as well. It was really wonderful to connect with you both in person back in May of 2019 when you came out to make a presentation for the Nebraska chapter of the National Safety Council. So we were actually able to formally meet at that time and appreciate the work that, uh, that you're doing to prevent distracted driving which will be, I think, a key component of our, our conversation. And given that, I'd like you to just start out with uh, sharing your story. Uh, how did we arrive at this point that uh, we would have this conversation today? I got to rewind all the way back to 2008, which was mine and Steve's college graduation day. Something we I had worked for my whole life and started as the best day of my life. It was so exciting to kind of be on the precipice of real life. As Steve had gotten a job back home where he grew up in New York, I was going to work for Habitat for Humanity in New York and kind of figure out our lives together after having dated all four years of college. So my parents and I left the graduation ceremony that day. It was about an hour and a half drive to get home. We got about halfway home and we stopped at a gas station, which is the very last memory that I have for almost two months. 
five minutes after we left that gas station, my family's car was hit by an 18-wheeler as he swerved to miss a young man who was talking on his cell phone and ran a red light while doing so. When that truck hit our car, unfortunately, it killed both of my parents at 58 years old on, on impact. My mom didn't have her seatbelt on, and I think it will haunt me for the rest of my life if I would still have a mom if she had had her seatbelt on. I had my seatbelt on. The first paramedic on the scene lived right there. He got there within minutes, kept me alive through. It's hard to understand how I survived, what I survived, but this man kept me alive. I got to the hospital 11 miles away, all these things kind of coming together perfectly to keep me alive, to be able to tell this story. I'll fill in some of the blanks because JC's memory just doesn't exist for these parts of her life. But I had been trying to reach JC. We, you know, we said goodbye. We said goodbye to each other's families at, at school. And then I went back to New York as she was heading home. And after I got home, I was trying to get a hold of her just to say, Oh, Hey, I'm, I'm home, you know? And she wasn't responding Eventually, I got a call from JC's cell phone because I had been trying to reach her. The chaplain from the hospital called that number back. And that's, you know, how I sort of got filled in. But they wouldn't, you know, I guess legally, they couldn't give me any details. So I was kind of left in this limbo. Eventually, I got to the hospital and, and found out more information. But she was only given a 10% chance of surviving that first night. But JC is a fighter as she has always been. And, you know, just slowly but surely she, she got better. I mean, she does, as JC, you could say for yourself what your, your injuries are, but she's remarkably healthy for a person who went through what she did 12 years ago. So the truck that hit us was carrying 30 tons of milk. Uh, he had just picked it up, I believe. So it was all the way to the truck plus however many more thousands of pounds that is. I was in the front passenger seat. I had my seatbelt on, but still all that weight broke both my feet um, and my left leg. My tibia and fibula were broken. My wrist was broken. Collarbone is broken. My liver was damaged pretty badly. Both my lungs were collapsed. Uh, my pelvis was shattered, just absolutely destroyed. Uh, and I had pretty severe damage in my carotid arteries in here, which almost killed me a number of times, as I understand it. I had a really pretty bad traumatic brain injury, which was kind of the thing that put me closest to death that night, as I understand. And now it means that JC can't use her left arm or leg, really. That's been the, the lasting permanent physical right. injury. What's it been like, uh, the, the road back, uh, literally, uh, the kind of things that you had to, uh, engage in, I imagine with physical therapy and other kinds of therapies that would help you, uh, get back to where you are today. So I often say, I think I am fortunate that I was injured so badly. It was kind of too much was given to me to be able to handle all of it at once. So I was forced to focus on fighting to stay alive, even if I don't really remember that. I was forced to focus on those 
physical therapies and cognitive therapies, relearning how to be able to read the books you read in kindergarten, or even just being able to find my voice again and pronounce words the way that you expect them to be pronounced instead of whatever crazy way I was talking all those years ago, kind of trying to figure out how to be independent was a really big part of my rehabilitation process because I was 21. I turned 22 that summer and you know, like I said, I was right there on the edge of starting to live real life. And so it went through, I don't remember those first two months, which were in the first hospital. My very first memories start in the rehabilitation hospital where I lived there for another two months. They were the most physically painful months, days, hours of my life. I can't, again, can't describe the unimaginable pain that I was going through every single day, you know, as they were weaning me off these extremely strong pain medications that they kind of had to put me on because I was so badly injured. But being forced to deal with all of the physical gave my brain more time to heal and gave me more time to kind of accept and even understand what had happened to my parents. It was months before I could even acknowledge that my parents had been killed that day. It was one of the hardest things for us. And I, I guess I mean specifically me and JC's brother, Jared to deal with because she was in her lucid moments, which were not <laughs> uh, frequent in the earlier days, especially she would ask, you know, I, it was maybe six weeks after the crash. She asked like where our mom and dad and her brother told her the truth and she just couldn't process it or she thought it was a joke or a lie. It's kind of hard to describe where JC's brain was at that point, but she would say like, you know, stop joking. You're not funny would, would sometimes be her reaction, but she'd forget. She couldn't retain this new information. So she asked where her mom and dad were. I mean, it had to be dozens of times over the the next, let's call it six weeks. And we always tell her the truth. And sometimes she'd react appropriately the way a person would react, but she still couldn't retain it. And sometimes she'd deny it was true. I mean, it wasn't until at least three months or maybe another couple of weeks after that before it really sunk in. And she had this one day, uh, maybe she even remembers this one in rehab, in that rehab hospital where she just, cried all day and, and really couldn't function. And um, they decided just not to do her physical or occupational therapies that day and just kind of let her be. But the therapies, I mean, they went on. Jace, you could speak to it. So it was two months living in the hospital of every single day was hours and hours of therapies that I was released from the hospital and I moved home, which at that point meant mom and dad's house, which was as surreal as you can imagine, just trying to understand what had happened and even still why, how they weren't there, how they couldn't be there. So Steve moved along home with me. My brother had already moved back into that house. Uh, he's a few years older. He was 25 at the time. So the three of us were living there in this really strange kind of awful world I was still going to therapy, outpatient therapy. I guess at that point it was three days a week, I think. 
again, trying to get back whatever I could, I kind of started to realize that maybe the things that I had loved so much and devoted so much time to, you know, I was a softball player and a volleyball player and I was a runner and I rode my bike and I loved doing all of these things. And it was kind of becoming clear that I'll keep healing, but I might not ever get a lot of these favorite things back. I guess we lived in that house for about six months and we were struggling. You know, for me, there was a lot placed on my shoulders that maybe I wasn't really ready for, but I wasn't letting anybody know because I was entrusted with taking care of JC. Um, and I was doing these things, you know, just typical caregiving, progressing her and, and feeding her and helping her in the bathroom, just all these things that it took time for her to learn how to do on her own. And eventually we realized that we just kind of needed some some adults, we'll call them, even though we were 22 at the time, <laughs> to take care of us a little bit more. And and so that's when we moved into my parents' house where I grew up uh, in New York. And we were there for about two years. And she was she was doing outpatient therapy there as well. Paying for private individuals and also going to a rehabilitation hospital a few days a week as well. There was some wonderful fundraising done through our college, through friends, through strangers, just a lot of love that helps JC continue therapy, which maybe is part of the reason why she's so remarkably capable, given the damage that happened in her brain. It was about three solid years of doing either inpatient or outpatient therapies full time. You know, I was not in any state to be able to work at all. So we were very fortunate that Steve's, my family, and then Steve's family could take care of us and give us a place to live. Eventually, I was independent enough that Steve got a job at an ice cream store and that at least got his free ice cream, if nothing else. (laughs) (laughs) It was just, it was such a strange moment in time where like, I was kind of independent, but not independent enough that Steve could do anything real with his life, but I didn't really need him anymore. So I. So you're, you're a few years into this and I want to come back to this in a moment, but I, but I do want to ask a question just about JC uh, and Steve. I mean, you obviously knew JC's uh, mom and dad, but you know, what are the qualities and characteristics that really stood out about them and that you maybe hold close in your heart to this day and uh, it may influence you in some way? I think if I had to wrap it all up and I'll talk more in depth about different things, but they were both just always striving to make the world just a little bit better. And it meant different things for each of them. You know, my dad was really shy, so he was never like going out and talking to anyone. My mom talked to every single person she encountered everywhere she went. She was a teacher. She was an eighth grade English teacher. And I'm in touch with many of the students that she's had over the years that just absolutely adored her. She wanted to take care of every single person, anyone who needed anything. She was there, whether she was able to give it or not, she would find a way to help. And dad, dad was shy, but he could fix anything he put his hands on. So that meant, you know, when the neighbors needed new blades on their lawnmower, he was the one crawling underneath the lawnmower, helping them dig a new well because they ran into whatever issues they ran into with their well and all these things through acts of service. I think they both really 
helped to improve this world in their own way. And the thing that I really carry with me in trying to make that legacy carry on, even though they're not here anymore, I like to think that I'm able to do that by sharing their story. It certainly does uh, my heart good to hear that story, their story, your story, because, uh, you know, oftentimes, you know, people might ask the question, what does love look like? Love looks like your parents in each their own unique way. I always felt like they had a really great relationship. You know, it was different than my parents who also had a good relationship, but I just, I liked, I enjoyed watching them. I enjoyed experiencing something that I didn't get to experience otherwise because I, you know, I was coming to visit for days at a time and really seeing the way that people lived. And like she said, her mom was extremely kind as was her dad, but he was quieter in his way. And she just wanted to, she just wanted to cook for us. She just wanted to buy us tickets to go do something fun. She just always wanted to add betterment into our world. And, uh, I miss that. That's, you know, we've had 12 years of not having that and you don't forget it. How do you carry their spirit forward with you in, uh, in what you do today or in just dealing with the uh, challenges that have come along, you know, JC, because of your injuries. And I think Steve, in terms of, um, of your role in, in being supportive. I feel so close to them when I am able to share their stories and share their lives. Uh, and it's something that I really miss right now as we are not able to be traveling and speaking, feeling that connection that I get to have with them when I talk about them. So I try and find it in other ways. And it's silly things. You know, I write them a letter just in a notebook somewhere and they'll never see it. But it helps me feel like I'm still able to communicate with them in some way. As JC says in really all of our presentations at some point, she says uh, my parents you know, wanted the world to be a better place. I think when we're given our presentations, which is our, our full-time job, so it's been a quiet four or five months at this point for us, but it feels like we're doing that in our way. I never expected studying business and finance in college that I'd have a job that makes me feel so good about myself that, you know, I feel like I can uplift people. I can make uh, an impact in a, a positive way in the world. The work that you've been doing, the service that you've been doing through your presentations all around the country. Uh, how did that get started and how did it grow? And maybe giving some examples of uh, some of the opportunities that you've had, the people that you've met. So that's going way back again, at least in part because this story was so horrible. It was so many bad things in one. It got a lot of press got a lot of coverage because my parents were so beloved in the community. There were a lot of follow-up stories. So very early on, you know, reporters were coming to our house and trying to interview me when I was barely even able to speak. I kind of started to realize that maybe I could share this. Maybe I could make something out of this. And it evolved. It was learning that there had been no criminal charges against either of these other two drivers who had both broken laws because in Pennsylvania in 2008, there were no laws about cell phones and driving. 
the district attorney decided that meant no charges could be pressed because that was what caused the whole thing. To me, that was a call to action. It was insane to me that we know how dangerous phone use and driving is. We've known it for a long time. If you look at the science just a little bit, it's been around for a long time. Why wouldn't politicians pay attention to that science? You know, I had to make some kind of sense of that. So I testified in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, trying to get a law put in place regarding cell phones and driving. It's been a big struggle in Pennsylvania specifically, trying to get these laws put in place. But these press conferences kind of started to grow. And the next thing I know, I'm speaking at the United Nations, um, working with Governor Cuomo, as we now live in New York at this point in 2009, making New York's laws a little bit stronger and sharing my story on Oprah way back in 2010. And that was what got us an invite to speak in a high school. And that sounded terrifying. You know, okay, I can speak in front of a camera. I can speak in front of politicians and Oprah. I can handle that. But a high schooler, that was, that was a different story. <laughs> but we agreed. We went and we did it. And it was terrifying. I would guess we were not very good. But then we went and got trained at the National Safety Council. We started to feel really confident in our abilities to share the story and a little bit of the science and trying to use this for something positive. That first speech was actually at Steve's old high school through whatever connections there still were. We lived really close to it and it kind of worked out perfectly. And then word word of mouth and grants and whatever else came together kind of perfectly started sending us to schools on a full-time, you know, a full schedule. Those early days, it was a lot of people kind of doing us favors, just looking out for JC and Steve, wanting to help us the way they could. It was like speaking at my high school. And then, you know, my mom knew someone who was on the PTA of another local high school. And that first year in 2010, we only did six speeches from... June through December is is when we started, but it just kind of kept spreading. And in 2011, another advocate who is now a fan of JC's who happened to work with the national safety council had a, a grant started that started sending us to schools just throughout New York. And we, you know, we were refining the presentation as we were going, trying to figure out what worked and what wasn't working and, and slowly getting better and more confident. And we didn't have a website yet. We were still just kind of word of mouth. And, but in 2011, we did almost 70 events. And then every year since then, we've done over a hundred, although I guess 2020 is going to break that streak. And, you know, we got, I, I would say really, really good at high school presentations. And then we started to be asked to do corporate presentations and, we slowly figured out what worked with those and got better and better and, and did a lot of conferences. And we've worked with the National Safety Council a lot. And and now here we are. We're almost 1,200 events into uh, our career. And I think our favorite part of doing it, well, our favorite part is the traveling part, if we're being honest. I think we love traveling and seeing new places and getting to experience new things. But beyond that, it's meeting all of these amazing people as we get to travel the world and seeing that at the end of the day, 
regardless of our political opinions or our where we live, all these things, we are all the same. At the end of the day, we all want the same things. We want to protect our families and stay close with those we love. And I think that's something that brings me a lot of peace as we go through these, these difficult times that we're all really looking out for each other. And when you think back to your first uh, presentation, was there any kind of feedback that you got from uh, the students that kind of bolstered your, uh, I guess, esteem or, or enthusiasm for moving forward? I mean, it's hard to say that you feel good. You know, people will say, oh, that presentation that was so awesome. And they're like, I mean, it was, I'm sorry, it's sad, but you guys did such a good job. And that's kind of the same response that we have, that it feels incredible to be able to do this. And we felt it was incredibly difficult and... We were reading off of note cards, you know. Yeah. But it also, if it could, it felt really good to be able to try and bring something positive out of this worst day of, I believe, of both of our lives. I think that's fair to say. I don't remember giving the presentations, if I'm being honest. I know we did maybe four health classes, something like that. But I remember the walk home. Uh, it was a five-minute walk uh, back to my parents' house after high school. And that just, it was like walking on air. It was a whole different feeling. And we both felt like maybe this is something we can do, which was that much more important to us because as JC said, we were, we were struggling. I mean, I was working a part-time minimum wage kind of job because she still needed me enough of the time that I was not going to be able to go work at a bank or whatever. And we were watching our friends who we had just graduated with. It's now two years have passed and they're getting promoted and they're buying their first homes and they're getting engaged. And all, you know, we're watching the life that we thought we would be living pass us by through proxies and the thought that, oh, we might have just stumbled on something really, really good was just such an uplifting moment for us. Well, I'd like to give you an affirmation uh, for taking that risk to make that first presentation. You know, a little bit about my history is back in the early 1980s, which definitely dates me. I was a high school teacher and I, I taught an elective course. Uh, I hate to say I taught it. I, I think I facilitated it. Uh, it was called Death, Suffering and Healing. Uh, up that time had been called death and dying. And I thought, well, you know, maybe we should do something with this, with the title that it'd be a little more hopeful. But one of the presenters I had in, and I know her to this day, she was an uh, oncology nurse and uh, her dad was dying of cancer. She would come in and she would present every quarter when we had this elective. And she always said to me, she goes, I, I don't know why you have me in. I'm just not a very good speaker. But when we did evaluations at the end of each quarter, all the students said the very best presenter was Peg. They were very clear as to why. They said, it's because she's real. She is who she is. And, uh, you know, I think that uh, certainly that's a gift that you bring all of us, uh, having had the opportunity to hear you speak myself, and you bring the authenticity of who you really are and what your true experience has been and continues to be. And that that uh, in and of itself is a gift. In my own mind, it, it doesn't require polish. You know, it doesn't require a glitz or a, you know, a big PR crew coming out and telling us how wonderful your presentation is going to be. But because, you know, hearts are touched by, 
by reality. And yours is a reality that, as you mentioned, JC, just about the qualities that made up the lived experience of your mom and dad, that they came from the heart. They were true. That was who they were and really who they are to this day as you carry forth uh, work in their honor and memory. When you think of uh, 1,200 plus presentations at this point, I imagine there are many, many, many moments that have stood out for you in meeting so many people uh, around the country. And have you gone outside the United States as well? Yes. Um, We had a good, uh, long week of work in Canada, which was really amazing. They are every bit as polite as the stereotypes tell you. (laughs) And we've done some work. We did a corporate event in the Netherlands a few years ago. Well, when you you think of uh, those 1,200 plus presentations, you know, what's uh, one or two examples or moments of encounter that maybe stood out for you with, uh, you know, with maybe a particular person or group of people? I mean, the one statement I can make is in those 1,200 events, this affects everyone. I don't know if we've been to an event where someone hasn't come and told us their own story of losing someone they love because of something preventable on our roads or someone they know getting hurt. You know, these stories are everywhere. And I think we really focus on trying to get people to acknowledge that, to realize again, that it's real and my story might be old and far away or whatever other barriers there might be, but these stories exist everywhere. But there are definitely some that always stick out. I mean, we've done a a school for the deaf, which was just unlike anything we'd done, you know, being on stage with an interpreter and they were amazing. I mean, they were just such a great reactive group of kids, you know, not unlike any other group of kids. One that just has been sticking with me, maybe because it's so recent, is this was, you know, we were working up until March 10th was our last event this year before everything got shut down. But one we did in, I believe it was probably late January, was actually in Omaha. It was our second time there. First time we met you. Second time we were back speaking to an oil company, a Berkshire Hathaway company. And it was an evening event where the employees were allowed to bring a teenager if they had one. And then after we gave the presentation, a father and his son came up to me and the father just basically said, you know, like, I'm, I'm like you. I got that first call from the hospital from a phone. He recognized the same way that I got called from JC's phone. He got called from his daughter's phone. And she had been killed on, on the highway that afternoon. And he's, he felt very sure that she had been using her phone. Just knowing how addicted, in his words, she was to it when she was only 16, I want to say. So that one has just recently been sticking with me. As JC said, we love the traveling aspect and we've, we've worked on Native American reservations and young, old, we've now been to, was it 41 states or 42 states? I think 41 states. Everywhere people are different, but people are the same, as JC already said. 
And I think one memory that you just inspired that come, came back to me, uh, you know, we've spoken at my high school or I spoke at the school district where my mom taught four years after she had been killed. So that meant I was speaking to the kids who were in her class who came to school on that Monday to learn that this teacher had been killed the day before. That was really incredibly powerful or speaking at the high school that's the closest high school to the intersection where the crash was. This is the and, one I just thought of. <laughs> Go and having at that school first, that paramedic who was the very first person on the scene who is the reason I'm alive. First and foremost, I think having him there, getting him, you know, him being able to see what we can do, we can do with this story because he kept me alive. A uh, security officer who worked at the school, who was a police officer at the time, a police officer on the scene, and just his memories of that day. Or one of the students who was a junior or senior, you know, 16, 17 years old, saying, I was six years old when this happened. My parents forced us to come out and look at the cars and understand how serious and how dangerous driving can be, even at six years old, just trying to hammer that into her head and how that stuck with her all these years. Yeah. She told us that because of that, she's never even considered using her phone behind the wheel. And, you know, it's such a horrible way to maybe learn that lesson. But if one kid is safer because of what her parents did that day, that's almost not worth it in terms of the crash happening, but it's worth the trauma of bringing a child to a crash scene. Well, you know, it's, it speaks to uh, the lessons that reality can teach us uh, from a very young age. I think especially if we're honest about what actually happened here. You know, sometimes I think, uh, you know, kids are more resilient than we may know when we, uh, when we just tell them the truth, you know, that they can process that uh, in their own, in this case, uh, six-year-old way that informs an 18-year-old way of, of acting and living. I'm kind of, I've kind of sigh here for a moment. It's just a, a, a lot of, uh, a lot to ponder in all. But, you know, one of the questions that, that I want to ask was just, you know, how your relationship, you know, JC, you and Steve, how has it informed or supported your mission? You know, how is it, how has it grown and evolved uh, over these 12 years? So again, that's going way back. We dated, we met the very first day of college. We were dating three weeks later. Um, I was a little apprehensive about it all because he was this like popular New York kid who seemed so different from my <laughs> Pennsylvania country self. But quickly became obvious that we worked really well together, even if our backgrounds were a little different. We wanted the same things. And after having dated for four years, you know, like I said, we had life together planned. And then all of a sudden, everything was very different. And I don't remember those early days other than I didn't know who Steve was. Uh, I thought he was a friend from school and thought it was really strange and weird and gross when he would try and kiss me because I didn't know who he was. <laughs> um Thankfully, over the months, I figured that one out and figured out who he was. And we kind of were able over a lot of years and therapies, able to rebuild this relationship. And then we started speaking together. And initially, a lot of it was I was still too badly injured 
I don't believe that I would have been able to do it on my own for those that first year or two even. And then it became clear that Steve, not only in supporting me, but in the parts of the story that he was able to share, it was a really powerful addition to keep it in there, even if I was able to do it on my own. Yeah, there's um, just purely talking about speaking. There are plenty of speakers out there who maybe were the victim, and there's plenty of speakers out there who unfortunately lost a loved one. But we hit all these boxes of JC being a survivor, and you have me as the loved one and everything that I had to do during this time. And then, you know, we've also lost loved ones. Um, so it created a dynamic presentation. But we just, it's such a blessing to us that we happily, important, happily work together. You know, we, we get to travel the country together in happier times and more normal times and get to be tourists in the three hours we may have between two speeches and eat different things and meet different people together and form relationships. And we just were, we feel so solid in a way that, I mean, maybe no young relationship would feel, but we used to have jealousy issues. She didn't like when I hung out with my female friends and I didn't like when she hung out with her guy friends. And basically the second the crash happened and I was in that hospital with her 12 hours every day for four months straight, just that kind of that stuff just went out the window and you realize, well, okay, this is, this is the person I love and trust. I think she's feeling the same thing. And we've just felt really, really rock solid ever since then. And kind of on that note, continuing on that note, as we've been talking with a bunch of our friends, our couple friends, and what it's like, all of a sudden they're not in work and they're spending all day, every day together, and they can't quite figure out how to do that. And our friends are all like, you guys already do this. You know how to do it. We're like, yeah, we know how to do it. It means you figure out how to spend time apart, even if you're in the same place. You figure out how to make it work. We did. We learned that we would get annoyed with each other sometimes when we're on the road for a full week doing 10 schools. Sometimes we learned that we need to get separate beds and hotels. We're almost always, if it's very work, important. We're, yeah. We just get two beds <laughs> instead of the one King bed. And then when we're home, we often would say, okay, you go do the thing with your girls for the weekend or whatever. I'll go to Atlantic city with my guy friends, whatever it is building in, separate time that most people in in a marriage would have just going to different jobs every day. Well, maybe there's a, a whole new uh, bunch of workshops you could be giving people with <laughs> 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 some, some, some necessary direction and, and advice at all, because that's, uh, that's some good stuff there. You know, are there any questions that have come up for you that, uh, you know, that I haven't asked? You know, you say, well, this is something I would never want to leave out. We feel so happy to have you have found us, to have you in our lives. It's people like you that make the hard days, which we still have, easier. Just knowing that there's love and support all around this country and probably this world for what we're doing. Well, I mentioned because uh, you were going to join us in Colorado in uh, August of, uh, of this year. 
because uh, we have what we call our, our Live Forward running team. And Live Forward is the aspect of, of our uh, mission that focuses on families who have had loved ones who've died in traffic incidents and really focuses on bringing good into the world. And which, I mean, you personify, you know, every time you go out and, and share with whatever group it is that you're addressing and, and uh, connecting with. And, uh, but what we do with the Live Forward Weekend is we invite uh, families to come from all over the country out to Colorado Springs, which is in the shadow of Pikes Peak. I grew up there. So, uh, so we always said we're in the shadow of the peak, but we've been doing this for uh, 14 years uh, with uh, Keep Kids Alive. And we uh, have brought families together from all over the country. And the beauty of it is, is that our, our running team runs the Pikes Peak Ascent Trail Race in honor of loved ones who have died. And we carry everyone's name on the back of our shirts. And in fact, I got one of our recent shirts on right now. Your, your parents are on there, Gene and Jay. We do that action as, as runners. And some families have had, uh, they have family members that will run with us. But most of the families that come out, it's a, what I call kind of a reverse make-a-wish weekend. You couldn't do the one last thing you would have liked to have done with your loved one. So this is something for the families to be able to do, to have a weekend where they can share stories and make memories and, uh, and connect with other families and just have no pressure to do anything or be anything but who you are, where you are. And, you know, sadly, we're not able to do that this year because of the, the pandemic. But we certainly hope you can join us in 2021 and that the situation will be such that, uh, that everybody will be able to, to join together next year. You know, JC, I, I appreciate all the work that you did in helping with fundraising for, for this year with that, because, uh, you know, that's a significant contribution because we, we always work to raise the money from the ground up so that whatever expenses that people need help with, we can take care of, whether it has to do with travel, the hotel rooms are a given, you know, and all the uh, activities that are associated with the weekend. But I do want you to let you know that we, we really look forward to hopefully that happening. But also our uh, board chair, uh, Doug Troop, I don't know if you've, you've met Doug uh, directly. Doug and Sherry had uh, their uh, 21-year-old son who died back in, uh, I think it was 2014. Doug came across, uh, JC, I think one of your uh, videos that uh, has been up on LinkedIn and I think YouTube. And, and uh, I encourage people you all to put JC's name in your uh, search engine, J-A-C-Y, and then capital G-O-O-D. And I'm sure that that video will, will come up. I'm not going to say anything more about it. Just okay. go, go watch it because you know, it speaks for itself. But uh, kind of circling back, you know, if you had a, a final message or a thought or two that you would want to leave, leave with our listeners, uh, you know, what might that be? I think we get an opportunity every time we sit down in the car to change the world, to make the world a little better, to maybe be just a little bit kinder to everyone we encounter. And maybe that other person will never know that you did something nice for them. But I think it can make all of us better if we treated the roads with kind of the respect and, again, the kindness that they really, I think they require to keep us all alive and to keep us all safe in this time where I certainly don't want to end up in a hospital and I don't want to put any more stress on the healthcare workers than is already there. I think we've all got a responsibility to each other to try and help make that difference. The road is a place to 
to be respectful and responsible. And it, people just kind of forget. You know, we do it every day. So we forget 40,000 people die every year in this country doing this thing. But for the people who've experienced one of those statistics, it's not just a statistic. And if people could just get to that point before they felt it directly, whether, whether it's through stories like ours or, or what have you, you can really improve the world just by driving a little bit smarter and safer. Well, thank you. For our listeners, uh, how can they get in touch with you if they'd like to follow up? I believe I am the only JC Good in the world. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm on every social media that I've figured out. That's how I can start to tell that I'm getting a little bit older, that I don't want to start any new social media. Um, <laughs> but I'm out there okay. sharing this message as much as I can. And our website is hangupanddrive.com got this whole story on it it's got videos we've made on it it's got information for contacting us and trying to share this message as far as we can i want to give my wholehearted uh, endorsement for the work that you do and uh, for the blessing that you are for so many hopefully others will pick up on that and uh, pick up the phone or go to your website and uh, connect with you all and open up new opportunities as uh, we all move forward thank you Thank you for listening. Please visit kkad25.org to find out how you can support Keep Kids Alive Drive 25 and get involved by following on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Remember, it's about kids. It's about safety. It's about caring. It's about time.